This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. I think today should be a really uh, great opportunity for us to learn more, not only from CRS but from each other, about the work that we've been doing here at Villanova for many years, uh, mainly the kind of overseas uh, work with our students and advisors. The, the topic today is taking overseas poverty-related immersion experiences to the next level, a conversation with Catholic Relief Services. We are in this partnership for the last eight years. Uh, Villanova has been very committed to this partnership. The faculty have been very involved, along with members of campus ministry, uh, the whole Office of Mission and Ministry. Villanova, as an institution today, begins, last night actually began uh, a kind of a four-day uh, event called the celebration of our founder, St. Thomas of Villanova, who was also called uh, Father of the Poor. He was extremely committed uh, to working with the poor, and uh, we have taken that legacy. We've retrieved it, actually, after many years and made that uh, the forefront of, of what we've done for many years in terms of our outreach as a Catholic Augustinian institution. And that outreach takes us to the streets of Philadelphia, it takes us uh, to Latin America, it has taken us in the past to Africa and also to Asia. What it, it is about really in many ways uh, will be the topic of what you'll be working on today. And that is, um, how are these experiences uh, a commitment in justice, not just charity, not to diminish the significance and importance of charity, but how do we conceive our role in the world by way of a commitment, a faith commitment in justice? We try to bring about that kind of conversion in our students through reflection and uh, for them, in many ways, for our students, you're doing more than just an immersion experience. You're giving them also a message for life, I think, <clears throat> with regard to who they are in the world. And I think that place that they are in the world is one that they constantly need, as we all do. We're not any different. Uh, we need the discipline of reflection to think about who we are, where we are, what our commitments are, what our responsibilities are. We often like to think, uh, as many in our country do, about rights. And they're highly individualized. Uh, the Catholic Church for centuries were very opposed to the language of rights precisely for that reason. It's only more recently in our history that we've retrieved that notion of right, but not without the concomitant responsibility of looking at our duty in the world so that there are two sides of the same coin, not the highly individualized, but it should come out of a context of solidarity and commitment to a larger community, the world community, uh, in which our brothers and sisters share on this planet. So that's the kind of consciousness we want to bring about. That's uh, a long trajectory for many of our students. It takes sometimes years. Sometimes they don't get it while they're here, but you're planting seeds all the time. And the seeds will come to fruition, but we need to be extremely careful that we give them the kind of intellectual and moral tools with which to begin 
to do that work. Uh, that's what all of you will be involved in as you take this to another level. How do we deepen that kind of a commitment to justice and to bring about that kind of transformation of their minds? And if they begin to think differently about themselves and their place in the world, then the transformation of their hearts will follow. Uh, being a philosopher, I've always felt love is never blind. <laughs> there must be knowledge. And so knowledge must inform the heart. So how we go about combining our commitment and justice involves, I think, those two uh, categories. So I think this is going to be a wonderful day as you embark. Uh, this uh, workshop, I think, is um, one that I would like to compliment all of you for being here, members of the faculty, our interns, members of our campus ministry, mission and ministry. And I particularly want to thank Sue Toten, who works tirelessly. And I say this every year, but it's every year I'm even more indebted to the kind of work that she does in her office uh, to bring you all into this dialogue. This would not take place without her effort and energy. Um, so we're very, very grateful, Sue, for all you do. And I know I say that every year, but I hope you know that I mean every word every year, and it grows in my appreciation of the work you do. Uh, CRS is our partner, has been our partner, and uh, we have grown tremendously from that relationship. And we also hope that CRS has grown from the partnership with us, <laughs> because we have been involved in this work for many years before the eight-year partnership. So this is a kind of mutuality where we learn from each other and the ways in which uh, that process uh, of learning can bring us all to another space and place. I'd like to then um, just introduce our uh, CRS partners today. Uh, Kim Marie Lamberty is CRS program manager for. Morning, Marie Lamberty. She has a, a doctor of ministry degree, and and she is responsible for developing and maintaining partnerships between CRS and parishes, dioceses, religious congregations, and Catholic organizations with mission programs in Haiti. Uh, Lamberty has been developing and managing faith-based justice, peace, cross-cultural, and community service programs for nearly 20 years. She is the founder and president of Just Haiti, a coffee development program for Haitian subsistence growers. She founded and was executive director of the Episcopal Service Corps, a national young adult service program for the Episcopal Church. And she served with Christian peacemaker teams in Palestine, Cambodia, Colombia, and on the U.S.-Mexican border accompanying civilian communities at risk of violence. She gives workshops across the country on developing sustainable, effective solidarity partnerships and has written on Christian mission in zones of conflict, peace, uh, peace building in Colombia, and the spirituality of accompaniment. I like that, spirituality of accompaniment. Lamberty holds a Doctor of Ministry in Cross-Cultural Ministry from Catholic Theological Union and a Master's Degree in International Affairs from Columbia University. Delighted you're here. Thank you. Paul Miller is a native of Montclair, New Jersey, 
and is Senior Foreign Aid Advisor at CRS Headquarters in Baltimore. Not too far. Mm -hmm. His current position draws on more than 20 years of experience in relief, development, and human rights with overseas assignments in Africa and Latin America. Early in his career, he worked at the United Nations Secretariat in New York, the USAID mission in Haiti, and has served in a variety of positions with CRS at home and abroad, including country representative in Senegal and Brazil. Most recently, as Africa team leader, Paul supervised programs and advocacy on issues related to conflict, humanitarian aid, and extractive industries, among others. During a recent three-year hiatus from the agency, he managed projects on disability rights and taught courses on the politics of humanitarian aid at the uh, NHTSA school. This is Admiral NHTSA, is that Paul NHTSA? Paul NHTSA. Yeah, School of Advanced International Studies uh, of the Johns Hopkins University, where he continues to serve as occasional adjunct faculty member. PJ Craig. She is the replacement for Arlene Flaherty, so she has big shoes to fill. <laughs> Welcome you. Not replacement, not replacement. No, no, no. She is uh, in her own right a professional. She is the relationship manager and university liaison for CRS Northeast Mid-Atlantic Region. And she will be ordained as a Presbyterian minister on Sunday. So <laughs> congratulations. And as you can see, our CRS partners have been involved in interfaith work and, and are representatives uh, of very strong uh, religious traditions, all of which are very important in the work that we are about in the world, that we're all in this together. And if we can bring people of faith together uh, to be about the work of justice and solidarity, uh, hopefully we will make a significant difference in the world. So with that, I, I wish you well today. Uh, I'd like you to just take a moment of quiet prayer and, and think about and, and ask God what it is that you think you might want or need to take from this day and ask God's grace and blessing in that endeavor. Amen. Thank you for being here. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for the invitation, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation this morning. I want to make just a slight um, correction to my bio. I didn't look at it that closely <laughs> before you guys got it, but uh, the Episcopal Church founded the Episcopal Service Corps. I didn't. I was the, their first executive director prior to coming to uh, CRS, but, the, but not the founder, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, and I, so I'm just going to move in to, to the beginning of the, our conversation this morning. My part of it will be to kind of give an overall vision of, of what we mean when we talk about partnership, solidarity, and accompaniment in our global programming, in particular for immersion programs. So to give a vision and some kind of basic principles that we want to use to think about how we do it in a way that really builds justice and mutuality, as Barbara said in the introduction. And Paul's going to go more, go deeper into kind of how CRS has grappled with this in our programming and how that can be applicable to what you do here. 
And what I want to do is invite you, um, especially during my part, to interrupt me with your comments and questions as I go along. Please raise your hand if you have something you want to say. Let's have this be a dialogue so that it's not just me talking to you, but you're also offering your wisdom to the room. And I'll also stop and ask for comments as well, but please interrupt me, okay? So, so a little bit of church language here, since we are a Catholic institution. Why do we practice global solidarity? And it's because global solidarity gets at the very identity and heart of what it means to be Christian and Catholic. We are missionary or in mission by our very nature as Christians and as Catholics. That is what we believe. And what does it mean to be in mission? It means we are in solidarity. Right, with the efforts of all for what is noble and good. So what do we mean by solidarity? What does solidarity mean? Who wants to answer that? Anyone? We hear the word a lot. What does it mean? Walking with. Walking with. Excellent. Anything else? Anything else? So it, what it really means is to stand together. We stand together, we are united, right? As one human family, we are together, we belong together, right? And together, we, we stand with the efforts of all for what is noble and good. That's what we mean by solidarity. And where does it come from in our faith tradition? Where it comes from, and I'm gonna answer that question for you. Where it comes from in our faith tradition is, is how we understand God. Right? And, and it comes from the first chapter of Genesis. God poured out God's self right, in love to create humanity and all the rest of creation. We understand the identity of God as outpouring of self. And, and we are created in the image and likeness of God. So we also, our identity is outpouring of self. Does that make sense? Right? So that's where our understanding of mission and solidarity comes from. It's also where our understanding of our responsibility to each other comes from. In other words, each of us is created in the image and likeness of God. Each person, whether here in Philadelphia or in East Africa or Haiti or anywhere else in the world, each of us is created in God's image. And because of that, we are part of one human family. We stand together as one family. When one member of that family suffers, we all suffer. When one of us experiences joy, we all experience joy. Comments about that? Yes? I'll ask this just because I've thought about it. Please do. Um, so for solidarity, what always strikes me as somewhat odd is that Christian groups walk into situations with that mentality of solidarity. But solidarity, I think, necessitates an invitation to that. And I don't always sense that people have actually invited us, that we just go ahead and stick our flag in the ground and say, we're in solidarity, darn it. <laughs> uh, it just, it's a really troubling image to me because there, there has to be an invitation for us to walk or to journey or to stand with. And I don't know that we really ever get around to being invited. We just kind of show up. In. Yeah. Right. And I think that gets to the very heart 
of what we're talking about today, right? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, that is that that does get at the very heart of I think what we're all asking ourselves in a way, right? Like, uh, is it is this my agenda, right? Is it all about me and my agenda and the transformation of the Villanova students and Villanova community, or is there some sense of mutuality to this where we are transforming each other? And there's a mutual invitation for that transformation. It's not just us coming and saying, well, we, we have a right to do whatever we want in your town. We're planting our flag, and here we are. So I think you're definitely, you're at the heart of what we're going to talk about. Well, and yes. just to nuance it again, I, you know, I think part of it is, as well is that solidarity in the way that we're talking about it is always us going there, and it's never others coming to us. Mm -hmm. So. It's a very one-way relationship, the way it's structured mm -hmm. and how I've understood it. Right, and the question is how can we how can we push the reset button so that it's not a one-way relationship? And that's kind of the next slide, right? Accompaniment is mutual. Right? So the work that we're doing is our opportunity to live out, I'm repeating what I've already said, right? Our opportunity to live out our Catholic identity through accompanying our brothers and sisters overseas or here in relationship and service, but that accompaniment is mutual. And mutuality implies an invitation, right? And it also implies a relationship. And, and if we don't have an invitation or a relationship, right, then we actually aren't living out the true meaning of solidarity. And I think that's the point that you're making, and it's also what Paul and I are really trying to talk about this morning. And what we hope to get at by the end of the morning is some concrete action steps that you can take to work toward that in your in your different programs. Yes? Can I just problematize that a little bit? Is that one of the reasons it's so different is there's just a, a reality of different levels of resource. Uh -huh. I mean, we come into these relationships with an imbalance of resource and access to power and access to all sorts of things. And so we might say that we're in accompaniment with you, but that doesn't mean necessarily that that's true or that that's the way that other people see it. And the invitation might be something very different from what we might think. Right. I mean, and so we assume sometimes that, oh, if they want us to stand with them, but that doesn't necessarily mean, that, that's always a problem to overcome yeah. that perception of that, that imbalance in resources is always there. Right, and how is it possible to be in a, a mutual accompaniment relationship given the power imbalance? And the answer to that question is relationship is everything. It has to do with the quality of your relationship. You know, one of the um, groups that I have worked with, they said they talked to the one of the communities that they have immersion trips in and asked them what's the best thing about these outside groups coming, and the community said when they leave. <laughs> you know, and that is the reality of how some communities feel because it is an outside intervention into their reality. And if it's not mutual, what are these communities getting out of it? I take immersion trips to Haiti um, all the time, actually. Not sometimes on behalf of CRS and sometimes on behalf of the other project that was named in my bio. And um, my perspective on those immersion trips is that coffee growers in Haiti have better things to do than entertain my groups. They have better things to do. So what are they getting out of it? And that's the first question that we ask when we have the conversation about bringing a group, what are they getting out of it? And they have to understand and make sure that they're getting something out of it before they drop everything for a week 
and entertain my groups. So that, those are the kinds of, exactly the kinds of questions we need to be asking. So CRS and its overseas work has come up with a set of principles for how we do partnership well, because what we're talking about is partnership, mutuality, partnership, not a relationship that has some kind of huge difference between giver and receiver, where our identity is giver and their identity is you're coming into my town to do something. Right, so a partnership implies mutuality. And here's the set of principles. There's no time for me to go through every single one of these this morning, so I'm not going to, but there is a handout that you will receive that has each one of them with an explanation. And what I wanna do this morning is to pull out the main themes from these principles, or three main themes from these principles that I want us to think about today. So you don't have to write them down because you're gonna get a handout, okay? <laughs> you can if you want write them down, but you are gonna get a handout. So the most important thing, and we've said this already, emphasize relationship, right? The relationship is the most important thing, right? God created us out of love. We are made for love. Love is what we care about, and love implies relationship. It's what we hope for fundamentally when we go, Right? It's also what the receiving communities care about if you ask them. That's what they care about. They care that you want to be in relationship with them. Nobody wants to be your project. Right? That is not their identity. The poor are not identified. Their identity is not their poverty. Right? Their identity is their dignity as creating God's image just like me and just like everyone else. People don't want to be your project. They do want to be your friend. So the relationship is the most important thing. And whatever it is we do in our work, the aim, the primary aim is to foster relationship. That's what people care about. It's also what your students care about. And it's fundamentally what is transformational. On both sides, transformational in me, transformational in the community that you're working in. So the projects that we do, often relationships end up leading to projects, you know? That's just, that is the nature of the, of the thing, right? In the US as well, in all of our relationships, sometimes we end up in projects, right? Often it leads to, often out of the relationship, we will have a project, right? But the point is, the, the project develops out of the relationship. It can also be a vehicle for developing relationships. And an example of that is I took a group to Haiti once and, and the, the Haitian community said, come and help us paint our school. Not, we, didn't come, we didn't say we're gonna come and paint your school for you. That is not what we did. They said, come and help us paint our school. So all the students in the whole school were painting their school and we came and painted with them. That was a project, but but no one will ever forget that, not because of the school painting, but because we all shared, sang songs together and shared some meals and we taught each other songs in our own languages and we developed relationships that have endured as a result of that. So that's what I mean. So our projects, are they develop out of relationships, they can also be relational in and of themselves. Does that make sense? I'm gonna go kind of quickly now because we're gonna run out of time. The other thing is, you know, 
This is another, I'm pulling out a key theme, and subsidiarity is a word in Catholic social teaching, but what I'm talking about here is we are each created in God's image with equal dignity, right? In, our, in the cultural context of the United States, we tend to have a fix-it mentality. We're going to come into your community, whatever it is, we see poverty, we're going to fix something, whatever it is, right? And my question to you is, does that lift up the dignity of the community that we're trying to fix? What does it do? It kind of does, doesn't it? Diminish the dignity, right? So the point being, what we want to do is support and lift up local leadership, right, to, to, to lead their own project, whatever the project is that we are coming to out of our relationship. We want, to, we want it to be locally led, right? And if it's not locally led, why is it not locally led? And how can we work with the community so that it is? So that it's not something that we're in charge of, but rather it's something that the community is in charge of. And I would tell you, in my immersion trips to Haiti, the coffee growers plan the trip. They plan the entire thing, I let go of it. And they are incredibly powerful experiences for the participants. The other is sustainability. That I, the other theme I want to pull out, the theme of sustainability. So sustainability, what does it mean? Anyone? It can maintain itself. It can maintain itself. So what happens after we're gone? Right? Is the thing, whatever the thing is that we're doing, whether it's a medical mission, or whether it's a water project, which is the picture I have here, or whether it's something else, will it survive after we stop coming? Because we will not be there in perpetuity. It's not gonna happen, right? At some point, right, the thing has to go on without us. So what is it that we are doing to lay the groundwork and develop the local, what we would say, capacity for it to continue after we leave. And that's the question of sustainability, and it's a question we should be asking about all of our interventions. So, and this one gets to your question, and this is based on some of my own work. So I did some interviews with community leaders who were on the receiving end, right, of accompaniment and immersion trips and, uh, and outside projects coming in, and I asked them, what is it that you're looking for? Why do you invite outsiders to come into your community? What are you looking for? And these were the answers I got. They're looking for relationship. That was the, and the one thing that every single person I asked said. The thing is, relationship in and of itself is empowering all by itself, and sometimes that's all it takes. Right? It is empowering that someone comes in from the outside who doesn't know you and want, but wants to listen to your story and by being there validates your dignity and your life project and your hopes and dreams. That's what people care about. In addition to this, they say, we need investment. Nobody has ever said, come and give us stuff. <laughs> no one has ever said that. 
No one has ever said send food, send clothes. They say that when there's an emergency, but I mean in terms of a long-term way of addressing their hopes and dreams. People say what we really are looking for is investment in our community projects, in our hopes and dreams, so that we can develop our own community the way we want to develop it. We're looking for investment, right? And there is a sense of mutuality in that. And they say also, we know we don't have the best education. We know that we're lacking in certain skills. We know that you have those skills. You can help us with skills, right? With strengthening our ability to enact these kinds of projects. So skills, workshops, formation programs, never underestimate the power of a workshop. It is incredibly empowering. I did a workshop once with a group of Haitians again, and it was on financial management. And at the end of the workshop, and organizational development, and at the end of the workshop, people stood up and they said, we are illiterate farmers, we have no education. But with a workshop like this, we understand now how things are supposed to work, which we didn't understand before. And now that we understand how things are supposed to work, no one can just come in from the outside and do whatever they want with us, right? Because we understand how it's supposed to work. Comments? <coughs> yes? My experience is they do workshops for us. Because even I better, like we don't really know what they know better what they need to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's right. A workshop wouldn't be to us telling them what to do, really. A workshop would be they identify a skill, right, uh, that is lacking for mm -hmm. them to achieve whatever their hopes and dreams might be. Mm -hmm. And they don't have that skill, and they identify that skill, and they say, can you help us to okay. facilitate a workshop? Yeah, Does that make sense? Yep. Mm -hmm. Other comments? Or questions. All right. So when we think about mission or solidarity as accompaniment, as this sense of mutuality that embodies all of those principles, first and foremost, accompaniment means we are present, right? To, to whatever community that we are in. We are present to them in relationship. And presence alone is often enough. In, our, in a mentality in the US, we have a mentality of we have to do stuff. It's very hard to take groups of people and not think, okay, what is it that we're gonna do? It has to be, we have to fix something, we have to build something, we have to do something. And it's true that, that is gonna be a part of it, but first and foremost, it's our presence that really matters. And then it's, it would be an active presence, right? An active presence that would also help to uplift the dignity of the community and, and help them to realize their own goals. So that's what we mean by accompaniment. Does that make sense? Yes. Question about presence. Yes. Um, go on a, a trip, you're present with folks face-to-face -face and you leave because you have other duties here at Villanova or wherever else. Mm -hmm. So is it possible to remain present once you leave? That is such a good question. And I, and I think that the answer to that question is yes. And, and, and on different levels, right? So the leaders who are, who are always 
who are the continuity, right? The staff at Villanova or the leadership here, there is a continuity where you can maintain an ongoing relationship in various ways. So, so in many ways that relationship has its continuity through you as leaders. But in addition to that, I, I think that the best um, immersion programs are the ones that find a way to keep people engaged after they come back. So what is that way, right, that we keep people engaged? And that is generally up to the community that you're working with to, to work together with them to figure out what is a good way to keep people engaged. So when I was working in Columbia, as an example, you know, everyone I ever worked with in Columbia had a very good understanding of how U.S. foreign policy affected them. You know, sure. <laughs> really, they know they knew more about U.S. foreign policy. People at the very base level in Colombia knew way more about U.S. foreign policy than anyone in the United States knows about how you know how U.S. policy in Colombia affects Colombians. So they would say, "Can't you do something about your government?" <laughs> that, you know, that's what they would say. So, in other words, in and that's advocacy. You know legislative advocacy that CRS is deeply engaged in, by the way. That's a way that you can engage through CRS. Um, so the point is there are ways to stay engaged in a relationship right, beyond that trip. And what I would say is that it's important for the leaders, those of you who are leaders, to remain in relationship even when you're here. Right? I communicate with coffee growers in Haiti via text message in Haitian Creole. Right there at the top of a mountain somewhere in the middle of Haiti. That's how we communicate, we stay in touch. It can be done, and it matters to people. It matters a lot. It's the most important thing. Yes? I'd just like to give a quick example of that, if I could. Please. Two weeks ago, I went to a wedding down in Washington, and it was of a young man who I met 14 years ago walking along the shores of Lake Victoria in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. And meeting him at that time, when he was 13 years old, I never thought 14 years later I'd be attending his wedding in Washington. But just being able to start the relationship then, continue here and there throughout the years, and how it you know, continues to unfold. So I just think it's really important, and how important that is for the folks we are encountering to continue that relationship as well. He's done a better job of it than I have. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, because that's what he cares about. Yeah, It matters to him. It doesn't matter so much that you come in and fix something. Right. You know, it matters to him that, you, that you're walking with him in solidarity and that you care enough to maintain that relationship with someone who lives on a different continent. That's what he cares about. And that's been my experience as well. I, I think it's a feeling of connected, of not being forgotten. Of yes. being isolated, of being connected to something larger than, because the situations we often find are so isolating, whether it's poverty or whether it's geography or remoteness or disconnected from influence or, you know, to sort of have somebody who, or to feel connected to the world, to the larger world is a big thing. I often hear that, that don't forget, don't forget us. Right, because, the, because isolation is actually a major cause of poverty. Right. People not having access to, to markets or roads or education or communication, that kind of isolation, it makes people feel less isolated. Absolutely. And I would say that's true in this country as well. Yep. Other comments or questions? So I'm just going to sum up because I'm about out of time. 
so this is basically what I've already said. I didn't talk about this, but in reality, if we, if we don't make some basic efforts, those of us who are in relationship, we don't make some basic efforts to understand l the language, the culture, and the, and the traditions of the community that we're planting ourselves in, um, then we can't have a real relationship. And when I was in Colombia, people used to say to me, why do you send people here who don't know anything about us? That's what they would say. They would say, you know, we don't understand why you do that. So, so that is basically, you know, it's basic stuff. And, when, and in my own relationship with Haiti and, and Haitian communities, people used to say to me 15 years ago, because I've been involved a long time, they would say, why don't you learn Creole? And I was like, ah, I, you know, Creole. And the, the reality was they knew that I wasn't committed. They knew I wasn't committed because I hadn't made an attempt to learn the language. It was only after I made an attempt to learn the language that people realized I was committed. It matters. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. It binds us together to, with each other and with God. And then regular and reciprocal visits. Do we ever bring people here? And it's often not easy. Sometimes there are visa problems. But do we ever bring people here? Because when we do that, they can be exposed to a much larger group of students than the few that go down there for immersion trips. And then when we decide what we're doing, first of all, do we have an invitation? So let's check out whether we have an invitation and what that invitation is. right? And then decision-making about what we do that's mutual and joint and that respects the dignity of all parties. So decision-making that involves a dialogue. And then, yes. Can I just comment? That Please. There, for us <coughs> academics, there actually is a model for this. It is called community-based participatory yep. research. Yes, it is. So, so, you know, that's a way for us to go. Right? It's an entry point. Right. Yep. Thank you. So we, we assess our success not on, yes. Sure. So uh, as a generic approach, sort of a, a general concept, is it fair to have a income liaison for these type of things for establishing that? Um, it's, it's often what people do, like you have a, a point person on the ground that is a liaison between uh, whatever the community is and the community here, but that person should be from the country. Yeah. Which is not always the case. Right. It's not always the case. That's why I make the point. Uh, so we assess our success, right, not based on how many people we feed, or how many patients we see, or how many things we build, right? We assess our success based on whether or not the community that we have been inserted into has an enhanced capacity to do this, whatever it is, for themselves. Okay, it's a lot of words, but that's what it means. And then, I, I mentioned the Columbia, yes. I'm sorry. How, how then do you communicate that with funders? Mm -hmm. Because that's really not <coughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> I can answer part of it. Yeah, it, it's a question okay. that it's a question that CRS grapples with as well because this this capacity strengthening is what we call it, and Paul's going to talk about it a little bit more. But it, it and actually CRS has gotten some serious funding for it, but it is the direction <coughs> that we have been going in our overseas programming as well. So how do we build up the capacity of local communities to do this for themselves, and how do we get funding for it? And you're right, it's easier to get, it's easier to get people to send checks for a feeding program, 
The problem is it doesn't address the issue, right? It's not a long-term solution to poverty. And what we're talking about, this capacity strengthening, that is much more transformational. So anyway, I think you're going to address that a little bit more. And then I talked a little bit about advocacy, um, but we also, that's part, one way that we can stay engaged uh, even after we come home is to think about what are the structural causes of what's going on there and are there ways to address it here in the United States. And I'm going to stop because I'm eating into Paul's time. <laughs> and, and there will hopefully be time at the end for additional conversation. Lots of conversation this morning for us to unpack this. And thanks for the dialogue, too. This has been really good. I'm going to pull you. I'm going to pull yours up, Paul. Thank you. I'm actually going to have people introduce themselves and, and talk about the schedule for two minutes. Sure, however you want to do it. I think it'll be quick. Great. Thank you, Kim. Wow. So Kim has an approach where she is carefully selecting what she's going to talk about and then really engage you in a dialogue. I'm just going to throw a lot on the wall and see what slides down. Um, but maybe another way of saying it is, is um, I have a PowerPoint presentation which was really prepared for a different kind of audience. Um, and I'll be pre presenting a couple of different things. But definitely, the themes that you've already brought up in, in response to, to Kim's great presentation is exactly what I'm going to be focusing on. Um, and there'll be plenty of time. And I actually, if that's OK with, with Sue and everyone else, I actually wanted to take, I think we're doing OK on time. Yes. Um, so I was actually going to ask people to briefly introduce themselves. Um, if that's OK, we'll, we can do more of that, that in the small groups. Um, but first, just a reminder of the schedule. So I'll be speaking for about 20 minutes or so. Um, again, some of it will be rapid fire, and some of it will be, again, just asking for your input. And then we'll have at least 20 minutes to, to talk um, before we go into small groups. And those small group sessions, and they're around the corner, and so we can talk more about the, the, the logistics of that. Um, that's you'll be split in two, um, and then the idea is, is to surface what in our presentations or in the dialogue actually you know, grabbed you, that you, you actually provoked you, or you wanted to challenge. Um, and then we'll be coming back here in this room, um, uh, and, uh, and then we'll be kind of talking about themes. We'll be reporting back out, and then we'll be kind of generating themes um, about host communities and Villanova participants, um, in which that we're going to again explore again in small groups before we come back. Um, so in there, there'll also be a break. So your next break is, I think, actually listed uh, at 11.10, but obviously if you need, need to leave briefly, that's fine. And I guess, so you can tell us where, and people know the building, so they know where to go in terms of, okay, the facilities. Okay, bathrooms, etc. cetera. Right. Um, and there's coffee in the back. Um, but I just wanted to kind of just remind folks of what the schedule is. So you have plenty of time, but I'm just really glad that Kim broke the ice in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, really getting you to, to offer your experience, because that's going to make it, um, I, I think, a really more memorable workshop. But, so I was, of course, curious. What a great idea to bring nursing and engineers and theology together, max mix. But I, I just wanted to ask, ask, ask each person just to say their name and what part of Villanova are they representing or coming from. So can I start you with you, Virginia? Uh, of course. <laughs> well, my name is Virginia Munca, and I am coming from Nicaragua. I work with the team with Villanova here for the Telehealth Project in Los Lagos. I'm Barbara Ott from Nursing. Um, we take students to uh, Ghana and to uh, uh, Nicaragua and Peru, and most recently this summer I worked with um, Partners in Health in Haiti, uh, opening a hospital there. I'm Betty Mariani, and I'm from the College of Nursing as well. 
I'm Tammy Kerr, and I'm also from the College of Nursing, and I take students to the Dominican Republic to work with the Haitian migrant workers, and I've also started taking students to Nicaragua. Hi, I'm Mary. I'm a campus ministry intern. Um, part of my duties is to be an advisor for the service break experiences. I'm John Albert, also a campus <coughs> ministry intern with the same responsibilities as Mary. And I am Jared Kinkley. I'm also a campus ministry intern. I'm Tim O'Connell, and I currently direct the service break program. I'm Matthew Pease. I'm also an intern. And just to add, these are also a full time I'm Jerry Byer. I'm a new member of the Theology and Religious Studies Department. My name is Matt. I'm a campus ministry guy. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Nora Pillar Reynolds, and I'm actually not here with the Villanova hat, but as Vice President of Water Kulislala. Great. Okay. I'm Susan Mackey Callis, and I chair the University Life Committee on the Comprehensive and Strategic Internationalization. But uh, I'm also faculty in the Communication Department, and we're developing a program in Ghana, so we'd love to see about how Welcome, Maureen. <laughs> hey, Maureen. I'm the uh, regional director for the Northeast Mid-Atlantic Region for Catholic Relief Services. I'm PJ. You've already been <laughs> And I'm Barbara Wall. I'm Nancy Sharp-Hopko from Nursing in the Dark Distant Past. I worked for WHO in Bangladesh when I was a Presbyterian missionary in Japan. Mm. Name's Ian. Um, I'm a grad student in the Sustainable Engineering Program, and I was an in-country liaison in Nicaragua for the last two years. Tom Hogan, Director of Student Development, also teaching the History Department, and advise several uh, immersion experiences, and also run service programs out of our office as well. Um, I'm Irene King. I'm the Director of the Center for Service and Social Justice through Campus Ministry, and Tim and I work together on the break I'm Tim Hoyer. I'm um, with the Center for Peace and Justice. I've done some break trips, uh, both domestic and international, and also do the um, summer program in uh, Rwanda. I'm John Avon. I used to coordinate the service break program with Tim, um, but I now work with the Augustinian Volunteers, which is a lay volunteer program run by them. My name is Hannah Cumberer. I also work with Joanna, the Augustinian Volunteers. I'm Fran Keen. I'm the interim director of the Center for Global and Public Health in the College of Nursing, and I most frequently take students to South Africa. I'm Ruth McDermott-Levy from the College of Nursing. I'm involved with the interdisciplinary um, program with Virginia um, in, in Nicaragua with nursing, engineering, and business, and I'm also involved, we're going to be going to Panama with another in, interdisciplinary course, and I've taken students to, as well as Nicaragua, Peru, South Africa, and Oman. Great. 
Thank you so much. I mean, I, I, yes, Marie. Uh, just one other thing I forgot to say uh, when Kim was talking about relationship. I guess it was four years ago, Sue, Tim, Tom, Fran, and I were on a delegation with some others from Villanova to Rwanda. And that has, I think, cemented us in ways that we never could have right. imagined. And it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity, not only for the group, but I think for the people that we develop relationships with there. I just wanted to put Thank that you. there. And my hope is that we'll have another one. Plug, plug. Keep plugging. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. I wanted to do this because I think the, the geography of the, of, you know, like, okay, so the nurses are up front. So obviously, well, this, we, to make a max mix work, right, the minutes mix, well, we obviously have to mix you up, and we will. But I, it's, I was thinking about that in terms of participatory rural appraisal and other things, where you're, one of the things we do is we walk a transect through a village. Um, and seeing just document what you find in mapping. So I, that's that you indulged me, but I think it's important as, as we go forward. Um, so as I said, um, I'm from the New York area. I'll talk a mile a minute. I will slow down. Um, but mainly, um, and I'll, I'll pass out um, uh, some copies of, um, of my PowerPoint. What I'm going to be talking about mainly is, is, is this topic of are there lessons from CRS's overseas experience and this tool that we use, you might even call it a heuristic device, the, the integral human development. And, I, and that is a question. It's not necessarily that there are. Um, and I think that, that I, sense of humility and, and modesty, I think, is necessary when we talk about development for all the reasons that Kim said so well. Um, but I, the first 20 or 25 slides, I'm just going to go through rapidly because some of them are just pictures. And some of them are things that we can come back to. Um, uh, and, and really, I'm going to focus on, on what really I, I think may be happening in the world of development. Um, in other words, I will summarize this integral human development, this way that CRS is thinking about its program since we work with partners, which therefore we do a lot of different kinds of projects. It's not just health projects. It's not just agriculture projects or justice and peace projects. It's all kinds of projects. Um, I think there are questions that come up uh, when we think about integral human development and solidarity and the topics that Kim was saying with what's happening in the world, and you already were there. Um, in terms of, of the communication, for instance. So I went up to see my, you know, I'm father of a 16-year-old as well as a 19-year-old. So the 16-year-old was in his room doing homework at the computer, headphones on. So what is he really doing? Who is he chatting with? I chat. Is it friend? Is he getting homework? Is he with his rock band friends doing something online? Dad, I was just texting with the people in El Salvador I met over the summer. What? So yes, I made sure Ben went on a service trip this summer. Um, and I could talk more about it, but it struck me that this idea that we, are, we can be connected, and this was a poor village in Cabanas in, 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 in El Salvador, El Salvador, and he stayed with a guy who was a beekeeper um, who had lived in the United States, and, and again, all those stories. But things are changing in development, um, and information communication technology is one of those things, but also development practice and the challenges uh, that the new world presents. And then again, how, how might this experience apply? And these are things where you're the experts, and that's what we'll be doing for most of the workshop, is, is drawing and eliciting from you. And I, I've already seen some things that Sue put together and things that you want to do better, as well as things that you think are doing well. Um, at least for my son's experience, the preparation was really important, and it was done fairly well. But maybe the preparation also needs to change over time. So anyway, so that's what I'm going to do really quickly. So here I go, integral human development. Um, why did CRS come up with this? And, and Rwanda has an important place in CRS's self-reflection and, and re-examination that happened in the 90s, and I was privileged to be part of it, both overseas and at headquarters. Um, and there were ways that we came up with something called the Justice Lens, which was a way for CRS to bring Catholic social teaching back into its work, 
but also to really make sure that whatever technical interventions we were doing with villages, with communities, with local partners, that it, we were seeing it through the lens of Catholic social teaching, of equity, um, of solidarity, um, of, of preferential options for the poor. And the Rwanda experience, the fact that a genocide could happen in a place where um, we had worked for so long, it's not that we didn't know what the issues were, but certainly our programming wasn't necessarily you know, aimed or really taking into account all that was happening. Um, and we have other frameworks, food security and other technical areas. Uh, might be health system strengthening. It might be uh, an AIDS project, which is, is, is working um, uh, with, with a variety of community groups um, in terms of income generation, um, in terms of, um, of helping um, uh, children, um, orphans and vulnerable children. So we needed something that kind of put all this together. Um, and what was interesting about it also was that um, um, a lot of staff from around the world and our strength is in our local partners and our local staff. We have thousands, 4,000 local staff um, overseas and they're of all religions and all different nationalities and it's one of the things, uh, certainly one of the reasons that I'm around, uh, been around the CRS for so long. Um, what is it? It's, it's a concept, it's a goal, it's a process, it's everything. Um, one way of thinking about it is, is that um, if you're promoting the good of every person and the whole person, um, then it is not just about your income. It's not even just about your health. It's about all of these different elements. Um, and you think of it as a process because it, it, it's, if you're participating in integral human development, then individuals and communities are expanding their choices. And they're also protecting, um, they're meeting their basic needs, but they're also addressing some of the things that keep them poor. And that is a, is a key element. And that's something that CRS articulated and started saying in a more open way um, when we adopted the justice lens. And then we said, how do we operationalize it in so many different country contexts, with so many different partners, with so many interventions? Um, where do we get the stuff? I mean, again, it's, it's a very simple tool in certain ways, but papal encyclicals, Catholic social teaching, our own guiding principles. Um, and we're building on these other concepts, which are well known in many other secular or other faith-based groups that relate to household livelihood strategies. Um, but the idea is that it is universal, and it's also important for sustainable development. So many projects do not succeed because they do not continue in time. In fact, some projects undermine the very resilience, the very leadership that, as Kim said, are so essential to making things continue, even if it's the best pump, even if it's the best, and oh my goodness, we just, we just solved this medical problem, um, but oh, the clinic's not gonna stay open because there's no user fees or there's no, no one's paying the personnel. Um, so all of those things are critical. Um, and just to make sure you have a mouthful, as we'd like to do at CRS, let's talk about it in one sentence. Everything we want to do in the world. And let's be modest about it, right? The people we serve increasingly realize their full human potential and solidarity with others in the context of a just and peaceful society. That respects the dignity of every person. Oh, and the integrity of creation. The world. The climate. This blue orb and all of the above. And many of you know much more about the theology and uh, the stewardship of creation, but again, so that's one way that we, we kind of summed it up. This is a not so great chart, um, but it, it is at least a way of thinking that we began to think about putting some of the pieces together, and there's a better a diagram that, that Kim just gave me, which I'll put up next. But the bottom line is this. Um, when we go into community, and on the invitation of the community, thank you, whoever said that, <laughs> um, we should be not looking not just at the needs, but at the assets. What do people have? Um, and how are those assets either made available or actually constrained by the structures and systems 
institutions, um, you know, religious, political values and beliefs, they actually make a difference in how people uh, consider a loan program. In some places, if you're doing better than someone else, you're taking it away from somebody. That's important to know if you're about to, if you're asked to participate in the project by. Um, and then for CRS, since we, we do relief, it's in our name, <laughs> um, shocks as well as trends. Um, and a resilient community is, is one that can recover better and that will not um, use all of its assets in responding to a crisis. So those, those are really important. Um, and I'll move, move even more quickly. The idea that it's not just one thing, it's not just financial or political, economic, it's spiritual as well, and that that is an incredibly important asset. Um, and those who do not use it or are underestimated, um, if you're working in Madagascar on a nutrition program and you did not know that there was a, a, a local healer um, who may or may not be Christian at all, Protestant, Catholic, or, or, or Muslim, for that matter, um, and then you're, you're trying to teach and, and work on nutrition and you're not addressing that source of power and, and asset, um, then you're going to have a problem in, in achieving your goal. Um, here is, is what Kim offered, which I think is a, a great way of thinking about how we begin to use this tool uh, when we are working with partners to develop a project. Um, and again, the, the invitation has to come from the partner, and it has to be a project that we really is, is their project that we're helping with. Um, but this first idea that we better understand it, and whether it's participatory rural appraisal or other techniques, but understanding the context, the political context. How many times have you heard about a community group in one particular place, but you don't know about the larger context? Um, sometimes, or you, it's not, you're not connecting it to other parts. So understanding the partner community <coughs> over time, its relationship to other, other communities, even within the community, are critical. Um, and building on those assets, yes, people have needs, um, but building on the assets may be a better way to address them. Um, making sure the programs are transparent. Does everyone know what's going on? And that's, that's, a, that's not always easy to build into your, your, uh, your relationship. Um, uh, and making sure you're getting feedback, as well as making sure that what you do is sustainable. Um, as I say, you'll be getting a handout with all of these. Um, again, we use it for all these reasons. Um, we want to make sure that even if it's a, just a, you think it's really just about improving the cassava yield, that even a project that sounds so technical and so agronomic, um, or building a building, um, uh, or earthquaking, um, uh, you know, an area that was recently hit, hit by um, uh, Gulu Gulu in Haiti, that all of these things actually enter into it. And you can make things worse, particularly in a conflict situation, if you bring people together to do a project, uh, or in fact are, are doing it in a way that actually doesn't bring them together. Often we try to use projects, sometimes shelter projects, water projects, um, in order to bring communities together that have, for whatever reason, been opposed to each other. So all of these things, and particularly these other issues that are much harder to get at, um, the systems and the structures and the inequities, we try to use this tool in order to um, look at it. And when we say assets, they can be tangible or intangible. More assets, the wealthier you are, greater diversity of assets reduces vulnerability to, to shocks. One quick story. I was in a village doing a participatory rural appraisal, and one of the things we do is wealth, wealth ranking. How do people in the community consider, you know, what is their definition of being wealthy? And just to let you know that what is wealth is can change according to who you're asking. So in one, we interviewed one woman and she said, well, wealth is having a lot of children. They can support me, they can work, you know? Wow, okay. So another woman though, we said, well, what is wealth? Well, if you're poor, you have a lot of children. 
because my God, you got to feed them. And so right there in the same village, um, you had. So this idea of what is an asset, it's, it's something that can also is, is not necessarily fixed, but we do consider assets that are not tangible as well. Um, I'm going to pause for a moment and see if there are. We use it in all kinds of different ways to design the projects and programs. Um, and, but we also look for those risks and those vulnerabilities. Um, you can build something up and it can be destroyed by war, by natural disaster, um, by even a political event. And that's what we've seen um, in many cases um, in, uh, um, in a number of places where we're working. We didn't consider Mali to be a fragile country. Um, it turned out to be for all kinds of reasons. One of the reasons was its next door neighbor, Libya. Um, so this idea that you, you had to look into that and, and part of what we're doing is not simply to make sure that that community has the clinic or is growing crops, but actually it can be resist um, an epidemic or can resist a blight on their crop. They have a way to, to manage and cope without leaving, um, without uh, really destroying or limiting their, all their assets. Um, and it applies to all these different areas. Um, Maybe one a key a key point here is, and I think Kim, you said it so perfectly. Wait a minute, why would the Haitian coffee farmers want to spend time with these people? You know, this idea that that this is these are complex portfolios that poor people have. Do not send them on a wild goose chase. We had a project in northern Senegal, fish culture. The farmers are spending a lot of time building the the, the, the fish ponds. It turned out that the cost of, of, of the, the fish farm, of the fish coming out of those fish farm, was more than if they had just bought a fish off of the truck, you know, 40 or 50 miles away. We were putting those poor farmers at risk. So we got to recognize that, and we have to understand that system. They're, they're, they're conservative often for a very important reason. Um, very diverse. The systems where, we, where we're working are very different, um, and that's why we want to make sure we have a system um, that allows us to look at that, and we want to focus on the strengths. Since so much of the development discourse in the past has been about needs, I'm coming to bring you. You said this very well, Kim. I have this knowledge. We're from a university. <laughs> we're from the government. We're here to help. Anyway, all of those things. Um, uh, so, and I think that I forget who said that. Was that um, Thoreau? If I knew someone was coming to, to do me good, I'd go in the opposite direction as quickly as possible. So, so, so as, as we, as we kind of use that jaundiced eye, using still the idea of solidarity, still the idea that, that, that invited in, we can make a difference, we want to make sure that, that we're looking at these things in all these different ways. And we need to empower people. And so that part of what we're talking about here and what I'm going to get to and cut to the chase now is how do we empower them. By the way, if you've ever done any of these techniques, they're so much fun. Um, and I, I was privileged to be part of a, a, a team evaluating a sesame project, and we had you know, three Africans and a couple of Americans and a lot of local languages. And we did maps, and we talked to people. And the point is, it wasn't what we were doing as a team. We were engaging the people in the community to do it, so they could begin talking about things and decide what was important. Um, and the women were involved, maybe in cultures where the women weren't always at the regular meetings or at the meetings at the official development projects or the government called. Really important, really fun, great way for students to engage. Amazing, in fact. Um, and a way to connect to the community in ways that you can go back and build ownership. So all kinds of ways of doing it. And you can chart your progress. We do this now in a lot of places in CRS. We put a, 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 a chart up, not saying CRS built this with AI, the taxpayers' money. We put up a chart saying how, how is the community doing in fulfilling its commitments that it made to itself. It's interesting. So 
strengths and opportunities, what is that we're doing? It's a relationship, but what is the thing that we're going to do to enhance that relationship to make sure it responds to what the community actually wants and is sustainable over time, as well as all these other good things? And the part that we were getting to, and that I'll spend the rest of the time, a lot of the rest of the time talking about, skills and capacity for our staff and our partners. So let me stop there. Just, just to kind of, but that was a lot of stuff. Integral human development, does any of this sound familiar? Um, this term, either from Catholic social teaching or from other development techniques, make any sense at all? Yeah? Just so it's just stuff you, you've known before, pretty much? Yeah? I, I, it is something, certainly, that nursing does. But you, watching that, I also think one of our shortcomings is that we collect all these data and we do all these assessments, but then we don't follow. And so we assess people to death in the U.S. and overseas, and it's really unfair and unkind. I, I, thank you for saying that. I'm, when I was in Rwanda um, doing evaluation with a Rwandan psychologist and an Ethiopian American, I couldn't. I, we we were almost like running over the Ph.D. candidates doing evaluations uh, or, or assessments and evaluations of uh, five years after the genocide. And it was, and how much of that information is going back? How much is that useful to me? So it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly important point. Anyone else struck by either, you know, okay, like how is this used or the different sectors or is this, this sound pretty, pretty standard in terms of, yes? It, it does, but it's also, it also kind of makes it more difficult to understand how the, the temps might fit in I kind of call it were temps, especially we're talking about immersion experiences yeah. for students. I mean, these are long-term goals that you talk about with staff, with partners. When you talk about partners, you're talking about being country partners, right? So how in that cycle, which is long-term, which is based on training and building, I think that's kind of what we're here. Like, where do we fit into that cycle? Right, and excellent what, and question. What we bring that feels, feels, I feel farther away after seeing that than okay. closer. Yeah, do you mind if I answer it? No, please. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to. No. <laughs> not right now. You know, we've got a good thing of collaboration here, but I, I, I can't, I mean, I'm not going to give you the, the, like, oh, this is the answer. But I, I can give you a window into it, right? So, and I think that the circle thing that Paul put up there, and you're going to get a handout anyway, so you don't have to write the thing down. So, you know, first of all, understand your community. Be in relationship with your community. First and foremost, that's the number one thing. Start there. Right, and then the sec. But the second thing is, you know, we don't go in there and see need. Right, we go in there and see strength. We look for assets. We look for gifts. We look for strengths. We go in there. We look for assets. And and then how is our intervention, whatever it is, whether it's campus ministry or nursing or anything else, how is our intervention? Strengthening and lifting up those assets, right? Because in this framework, there's an intervention that if you lift up the assets, then you're really addressing the, the, the root causes of whatever the problems are, right? Because they have assets. They also have hopes and dreams, you know, and ideas for how they want their situation to be improved based on their strengths and assets. So if we're not seeing that, First and foremost, we're not intervening where they're at as a community and as people that we're in relationship with. 
So to me, like the most important, the, to focus on the assets is the key entry point for all of us into this framework. And then um, the rest of it is, you know, we want to be transparent, so everyone has to know what it is we're doing and why we're there, right? We have to be flex, be flexible. Things change. We might have to change our project. It might not be working. So we change in collaboration with our community partners. And then the sustainability thing, which I talked about and which Paul has talked about well, are we really looking at how this is going to survive after we're gone? As Paul said, it could be the best pump in the world. But if we don't have a plan to maintain it, it's going to fall apart in two years and it's a waste of money. So that's my answer to your question. That's Our entry point is focus on the assets relationship, right? Focus on the assets of the community. How do we lift those up? I think I mean, one of the things that we've done with our work in the Dominican Republic is we have started working with other universities that go there, like UMass and Yale, and we've developed our own in conjunction with those in country in the Dominican Republic. Um, and we have monthly meetings, and sometimes those individuals from the Dominican Republic, because of technology, can, can tap into these. So when I'm going down there in two weeks. I know what UMass did when they were there during the summer, and I know what's happening um, you know, when Yale has been there or you know, some of our partners in, in Canada. So on the outside, you know, we're doing work here, but including those partners as well. And one of the things that has worked well is the water filtration program, where we, there was funding for that, um, and we helped them build the filters, but now they know how to build their filters. And now in country, they have water coordinators at the community level, so we've turned that project completely over to them. We got it going, we worked with other groups to keep it sustainable, and now it's completely in their hands, under their control. But, but the part of collaborating with other universities and other groups um, on the outside and including them has really helped some of our projects when we can't be in country as a university to be sustainable. Right. Thank and you. Work well. Excellent point, yeah. One of the things that I hear with your question um, is how do the participants in the programs um, understand what their experience is in this broader, bigger picture. Um, and I think that's a really hard thing to contextualize to them. Um, but I, I mean, I think this does a nice job of like big picture, but the, the little, like the individual person going to Nicaragua for, you know, two weeks, and that's the only experience they ever have with going there. I think it's an invitation to, to be open a little bit more, but um, it has to be contextualized. Because this, all of this, I mean, this is overwhelming, I think, for me. I don't know about the rest mm -hmm. of you guys trying to understand it all, but, and like, I'm like naturally wanting to be engaged in this. But for the person that's just there for two weeks, um, you know, I, I think that this is maybe a little overwhelming, but it's an invitation for them to, to start grappling with some of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for that invitation, I guess, to be open um, to them so that they take it with them in their life somehow. Um, and that's where I think like it's really important for these little trips. How do we how do we keep these people engaged for a little bit longer than just their actual? Yeah, Maureen. Oh. I just think one of the, the key things could be for students to really recognize that the communities where they're going have their own assets and strengths. Yeah. I think so often students say, okay, I'm going to go down there and, you know, kind of try to fix it or help with it. This is me bringing to this community. And I really think we're, uh, and I know Villanova does some great prep work before its students go, but generally 
and we have found in some of our conversations that that can be a really big point. Yep. That students begin to understand, wow, this community has its own strengths and assets. Exactly. That can change you know, their vision and the way they look at the global. One last question before I go on, yeah. I think that preparation part is key, and I think nursing has really tried to make that a focus of what we do with our international coursework, um, is preparing the individual student and opening them up to all these concepts. Do some of them engage in that? Yes. Do most of them? Yes. But some of them do not. And the other part of that is trying to keep them connected when they return. Yeah. Um, through faculty's personal relationship with, each, with them, and then through their own personal relationship right. with each other. Some of them are going back on their own, uh, maybe as part of us or individual. But I think it'll be about implanting that seed if you continue to communicate with them. I think it yeah. can work. Apparently, you have assets right here in Nicaragua. <laughs> In other, in other places. So I mean, I, I think that it, uh, those ideas are perfect. Let me just do a couple more slides and then we'll, we'll really, we'll end and, and then we'll get into a, a more, more of a discussion, uh, both for Kim and my presentation. I think the overwhelming part, I hear you. Um, that, was, that was, in a sense, perhaps um, possible. This, this, this is particularly reminding folks, Robert Chang Chambers is, was the guru of participatory rural appraisal uh, associated with the University of Sussex and development theorist. Um, but just reminding us of what we mean when we're talking about this participation and how it applies to everything, um, not just a project. So when we think about education, what we're doing, what, what's being done here. Um, and then what we talked about in terms of power and relations. You have the money, the unequal nature of, what's, of, of many development projects. Someone said it perfectly. Um, and the, the, the idea of we're coming to help you with the project raises those issues, so we have to navigate them. And I think what Kim said and what what, um, uh, what we've, you've added here is, you know, is, is really perfect. Who says what is good and who identifies what change matters? That's why you need the transparency. That's why you need the feedback. Um, and then who's the professional? Where's the assets and the knowledge? And again, what we talked about. And particularly, how do we do that with people who are excluded? Um, and then that we're actually in a period of accelerated change. And that, I think for me, presents opportunities as well as challenges. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about those really quickly. What's happening in the world? This is my snapshot, so possibly overwhelming, but the idea is to throw out some raw meat, see if anyone wants to cook it up. Rapid change. Um, uh, fastest growing countries, six fastest growing countries are in Africa. Um, cell phone coverage, you know, amazing. People finding out prices, people transferring money in Kenya, M-Pesa. Um, people using crowdsourcing to find people buried under the rubble after the Haiti, earth, or Haiti earthquake based on a software written by a Kenyan going to college in the United States. What? Wow. That happened. Ushahidi. It actually happened. Um, climate, more frequent disasters, more intense storms. Were the people who contributed least to global warming will suffer the most. It's a justice issue. It's a technical issue. It's a social issue. And it's certainly a political issue. And the fragility, both of political and, and, um, and uh, environmental. More and more development at the big picture is coming from private sources. It wasn't just for the oil and the gas and the diamonds that money is going into Africa. There's a market. People are coming into the middle class. I saw it in Brazil. It's rather amazing. And we're talking about sh partnering with organizations that we may or may not share all the values with. How do we do that? What's appropriate? Multinationals, local for-profits. There are organizations that are shape-shifting, right? You're a university, but you're actually a consultant. 
oh, you're actually a not-for-profit not here, but you're a for-profit over there. Um, so Department of Defense, um, USDA, those are, those are government agencies. There's 22 U.S. government agencies that fund development activities. It's a complicated situation out there, and that's important when we start partnering. Who are we partnering with? Donors want to fund local organizations. They say, CRS, well, CRS, what value are you really adding? I know your legacy is great, but really, what are you adding in particular? Um, and I think one of the things we do add is that we have a constituency and we connect with, with places like Villanova. But that's a question that's being asked. And whose strategy? Is it a community strategy? Is that local ownership the local government, which may or may not represent civil society? In fact, in some countries, civil society is being restricted. Freedom of religion, freedom to assemble. There's a development authoritarianism model, China. Some of our, the biggest aid recipients in the world, like Ethiopia, do, are not democracies. Rwanda, a star in development, not a democracy, and also some serious questions about its, its activities next door. Um, impact and evidence, if you can't show it, forget it. You're not going to get the money. Um, uh, there's more art than that suggests in this. Um, we can talk more about that. The post-2015 development, anyone heard of the Millennium Development Goals? Goals, yes, okay, those were goals set by the international community at the UN in various different areas, water, health, um, hunger. Uh, we're gonna come up with a new set, even though we didn't accomplish all of the first set. Um, but they're talking about making goals that are gonna be applied to us, we in the North, we develop North as well as the South. And the fact that communication technology and these issues of sustainability also are connecting our worlds in different ways, that how you vote, how you consume, how you invest, how you drive may be important to poor people overseas, but how people in China invest and vote in energy, that's gonna affect us too. This creates a really interesting opportunity when we talk about advocacy as well. And these are, I'm just throwing out ideas. Um, and here's, here let me just go into a, a two minute discussion of, well, if you're, you do have a local partner organization, one of the ways to, to really work on sustainability is to work with that organization to improve its ability. Um, and in the role of expats, you know, the people who are coming either on a short trip or a longer term, what are they adding and who's teaching whom? Um, one book um, that I recommend is called Time to Listen. Um, it, it is a, a book written by um, some folks um, from the CDA Learning Collective. Mary Anderson wrote something called Do No Harm, which is like the Hippocratic Oath of Development, uh, particularly related to conflict. But with the help of CRS and many other organizations, she interviewed all of the participants in many development projects. And guess what? They liked A, but it's not always achieving its aims, certainly not from their point of view. We need to change it. It can be done. I think immersion and service trips are actually one way to do it. So you'll have references to all this um, on the last slide. Can I, can I just add a book to that? It's yeah. Paul Farmer's book about Haiti that he just wrote, and it yes. really it addresses that, and it speaks as to what happened after the earthquake yep. happened, um, and how all these groups came in, and how it actually became very detrimental. Exactly. And it's a fabulous, fabulous book, and it's, I haven't read that one, but it's probably very similar. Um, it, in some ways it is. It's, it's a much broader, it's a survey, and so it's a, based on, on thousands of interviews, but it is, it gets at some similar messages, really important. Um, one tool that we use at CRS is it came out of our age relief work because we were, we were said the U.S. government gave us lots of money with our own money that we combined to support a response to the AIDS pandemic, and we had to transfer those programs to local governments or local church organizations within five years. A complicated clinical program 
something that Sears hadn't done a lot you know, uh, of work on. Um, and we realized that it wasn't just the, the clinical, the clinicians that needed to be at a, a top level of our local partners. It had to be the governance. Who's on the board of the local hospital? Are they doing the books right? Are they, how about the human resources? How about other, all kinds of other issues? And that assess it when a partner says, we want you to help us improve our organization, you can do us various kinds of assessments if they invite you. <laughs> um, and it's another great way, I think, for students uh, to be involved in terms of learning what makes an organization a not-for-profit organization tick. Um, and that these are the organizations that are going to keep those projects and make them sustainable. Um, we, it's something called the Hokai. Uh, we'll, I won't go into it in depth. It's just a, it's a questionnaire that, you, that the partner goes through and uh, outsiders can help facilitate it. Um, and it goes into all kinds of different things. So where the inter integral human development framework is a lens that focuses on structures and systems um, as well as the shocks, this tool um, uh, is, focuses on the structures and systems of not-for-profit organizations which are working to support communities. And that, that's why it's a tool that we found very important because CRS's role is much less doing the project after all, we have local partners and there's a local community. It's about helping those organizations, often church organizations, become sustainable. From the AIDS work, um, with the Institutional Strengthening Guide has not only the, this tool called the Holistic Capacity Assessment, it also has chapters on governance, it has chapters on human resources, on finance, on operations, on all these different areas that are so important for an organization to thrive, to get different kinds of funding, to do advocacy with the local government. Um, and so. That's why this may be also something that could be helpful for some of your, your programs if you have a, a local partner, because you can keep coming back to it even with short immersion trips. Um, and again, there's nine areas, um, and the idea is that it's participatory, um, it's about open dialogue, um, and of course the organization, that, the local organization has to be the one that owns the data and the outcomes. So what did I just say? A lot, too much. Um, we use this tool called Integral Human Development in order to try to you know, bring this idea of Catholic social teaching and, and justice in the broader sense of right relationships into all of our technical work and our, our relationships with communities. Um, when you assess um, whether it's the context of the community, the village, or a local organization, um, you know, it's a way for you to build on those strengths in a really concrete way. Oh my god, you don't have job descriptions? You never evaluate the performance of your staff? ooh, uh, that may be a problem, or oh, that, you can't give that money to, to the AID, or you can't give that report to AID, they will, they will, they will audit you and you, will, you won't get any more money. So very practical considerations. And our experience, I think, with these tools, um, the Institutional Strengthening Guide, which again, we have a, a link to, and, and the trends suggest that some of these actually are gonna be quite, or they could be uh, applicable to what you're doing. So I end with some questions, and these are questions that I came up with, but you have better ones um, about these service trips and these immersion programs. Um, well, first of all, who evaluates the impact? Is there an evaluation? <laughs> and I, by the way, CRS applies these to, to our, our own projects. In theory, we need to have evaluations of all our projects, but it's important to ask. Well, and who, who, did, who did the evaluation? Oh, three, three, three expat consultants from Washington did, did you know, like what? No, if it's a project of the community, then the, the community better evaluate it. Well, how are you, as, as a partner institution, involved with that? Um, what are the participatory elements? What tools do you use to engage? We talked about some of them. Um, do you have goals? Is it simply you have a relationship, the, the students come down and that's it? Or does the, 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 the we want to make that water filtration system sustainable, and we want local partners to be able to know how to fix, how to 
source you know, different parts or whatever it is. Um, if you do, then that could be part of your project, which goes over time. Um, the role of advocacy. I heard one definition of, of reverse mission is you know, coming back to the states and doing advocacy to affect the policies that affect the poor overseas. Maybe there's double reverse. Maybe you're part of the double reverse, right? Yeah, you came here, you go back there, you go back there. So with the technology, with the fact that we are such a diverse society in the United States, I mean, I, I, my experience is in Africa. I'm constantly running into, in, in Washington in particular, people from the places that I've, I've lived that I didn't think I would be using those three words of Senegalese Wolof, um, you know, the Haitian Creole, of course, you know, all the time. Um, but there are, there are opportunities, and advocacy is one of those ways, and it can be really ad the local advocacy that the partner is doing, as well as the advocacy back here. Um, and, uh, and then there are all kinds of development trends, um, the for-profit, the not-for-profit, the technology, um, the connections that we can talk about, the shared value. How have your relationships weathered change? Things change. Sometimes the project doesn't work out. And then this broader issue of social justice. Um, how is that in the curriculum here? How does that you know, relate to, to how you all um, are thinking as an institution? Those, that's a mouthful, but I thought I would just throw out some questions. And now we're going to start um, a, a discussion to kind of surface some things. And then uh, we have we'll about 15 minutes yeah. for, for questions and comments before we take a break. So um, what are you thinking? Questions or comments at this point? <laughs> yes. I'm going to be a little bit of a devil's advocate. Please. Good. Because this, this is something I really struggle with. As people who do long-term sustained partnerships with communities, mm -hmm. do you really think there's a place for one-week trips? Mm -hmm. I think it's a really, really good question. And, um, I, you know, let's try to together surface an answer to that question. Mm -hmm. I can give you my perspective. Um, as someone who leads these things, I've led them for CRS, I've led them for you know, a bunch of different organizations as well. So I can give you my perspective and then I'd be interested in the perspective of others in the room as well. My perspective is that they have enormous potential on a lot of different levels, enormous potential for transformation both here and in the host communities. That that, that potential is, is frequently not fulfilled. Um, because we lose the most important aspects of this, which are relational, which are the ones that Paul and I have been pulling out, relationship, subsidiarity, and sustainability, right? So, so when we lose that, when it's just, we're coming in, we're parachuting into your town for a week, we're going to fix something, whatever it is, and then we're going to go home, and that's the end of our experience. That, I think, is not fulfilling the potential of these trips. It ends up being a, a nice adventure for U.S. students, you know, and I think that's all of our fears, really, is that's what it ends up being, is a nice adventure for U.S. students, but are we really doing transformational work? And all of us are in this because we want to do transformational work. I am and you are. So are we being transformational, and, and, and how do we become transformational? And I think it's the, it's the principles or the issues that Paul and I have been pulling out that are going to help us to do transformational work. But if all you're doing in is parachuting in and parachuting out for a week, without that ongoing relationship and engagement, and the, you know, all of the focusing on uh, fo you know, the capacity strengthening of the community and the sustainability and all those issues, 
then I would say you should ask yourself, is it really just about your students or are you really doing transformational work? I believe that you can and I've seen it. So that's my answer. Are there other answers? Uh, I have another question to add to that, which is how do you identify partners in other places that want that type of mm -hmm. relationship? Because there are many who want us to parachute in and leave. That's their model. Um, and so I'm wondering about mm -hmm. identifying somebody who wants to engage more deeply as well with us um, and not just go as all the other maybe spring break groups are, are might be coming that they're used to and that they expect. Right, so we need to start having real conversations. I don't know, I mean, are your partners local partners or are your partners organizations it, it that varies send in country trips? To country, but. Because what I find is there are a lot of organizations in the U.S. whose job it is to organize immersion trips and they sort of, um, and, and they're, they're not necessarily going to be following the principles that we're surfacing here. And my, my position on this would be identify local community groups who are interested in having a real conversation with you about whether they want you in their town and why. And that's, what, that's, that's I think, the key to this. Right. Another way to think about it is, you know, you're part of a university. One of the, the most neglected uh, things, think one of the, the area institutions that often does not get development aid is, has been higher education. So imagine partnering, and maybe you already have, partnering with local universities which are also reaching out into communities. So the idea that, though, that, that if you have, my, my short answer, and I think your answers are going to be more interesting, is if you have an ongoing relationship which is based on these principles and good relationships, then you can plug and play. You can plug in your students because it's part of a long-term process which continues after, before, and after. And whatever their students are doing, they're not going to make it worse. <laughs> they're going to really you know, do no harm. Um, um, and and they'll, be, they'll be surrounded by people who are really interested in, in getting the energy um, and, and maybe some of the work, work from them. And then they can come back and not only reflect on it, but then continue to support that organization in different ways. So that, that, that idea that, but that presupposes, you know, not only that you've selected the, the partner, but you have an ongoing relationship on, on how this is going to work. So maybe the first part of the relationship is not about, you know, the, the, the seven day trip. Maybe, 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 in fact, you find existing organizations that are, are willing to do it, or a university that is already reaching out to local communities, a local university that's reaching out to local communities, and you say, we can bring some other. But those, that's just, just some off the top of my head. Yes, Barbara. Sometimes it, it seems to me that um, there's pressure to get a lot of students involved in a lot of projects um, for numerous reasons. Mm -hmm. But I think one of my concerns and questions I've been over the years that I've raised is within the context of serving different communities, how we, do we really have a strategic plan with that particular community, for example, whether it's yep. in Philadelphia or if it's in right. Haiti. Right. I, I like what Tammy had to say, connecting with the other partners, not only in country but out of country, to see, and to see what's been done with a plan for sustainability. So that it's not you jump in, you jump out. But what is our sustainable? What is our plan of sustainability? In that, whether working uh, in addition of working with local partners, who are the other people that come in? That takes a lot of time. So instead of just all these kinds of programs, can we spread along the side? 
and then maybe Paul yeah, wants to sure. too. Um, what I would say to that is what I've, what I've seen frequently is that, is that university programs are off, often, and I'm not saying this is what you do because I have no way of knowing, um, but many times university programs are focused on the student, right, as you're saying, right? And so how can we both, we do want to lift up the experience of our students, but how can we also lift up the experience of our partners? And you know, as, as people who work for a nonprofit organization, any functional organization has a strategic plan. So if, if the goal is sustainability, whatever it is, 10 years from now, we won't get there unless we have a plan, right? Where are we now? Assess where we are now. Let's look at where we want to be, and then let's make some steps for getting there. That's how you do it, but you do it not sitting in your office. You do it together with your local partner, right? How do we get from where we are now to where we want to be together in partnership, right? And I mean, I think you're saying really exactly what we're saying. Yeah, I, I just, I, I'm struck by analogy. We're constantly asked by our donors, you know, can't you take it to scale? I was like, we're working in, like, you know, this cassava program funded by Gates. It's in seven countries. It's 800,000 people. What? You know, can't you make it bigger? So there's, but, but okay, no, that's an exaggeration. But still, they want, you know, nationwide. Um, and there, I think there's a tension. I think part of the planning process and part of this discussion is about acknowledging that there's a tension. And that it's not that having more students go is a bad thing necessarily, but sometimes smaller you know, the deeper you go, the higher you fly. In other words, it's better. You get a better product, um, and you'll help the partner more if, if there are fewer students because it's hard to create those opportunities for students to meaningfully contribute or even to visit for seven days. So I think that acknowledging that's one tension. Um, there's probably other tensions. When you get a grant, you have the, the, the whoever is giving the grant wants you to do certain things, and those things may or may not be exactly what you were, were, was motivating you in the first place. This is one of the problems about AID, uh, the big U.S. government wanting to fund local organizations. Do they just want to pump money through those organizations to get whatever the U.S. government wants? Admittedly, maybe it's a good thing, like, you know, you know a reduction in malaria. But or, are they taking the, that, that local organization away from what their mission was? Because the resource-driven nature of development is really a bad thing. Um, and and it's, it's, it's not that resources aren't important. It's just that it's, it's relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is that really that helps both the student and the 
relationship with a local partner because if you do it right, you know where you're going in the middle of the, of the semester. And so you've right. already developed yep. that relationship with your partner abroad and you're communicating and planning and figuring out you know, what you're going to do when you get there and you're developing that relationship and then you go. And it's wonderful to the students when they come back. It's not like there are students who are left hanging in terms of how I make sense of this experience. Right? Then they have the whole rest of the semester to process and right. journal and reflect on the whole experience and to <coughs> develop the relationship with their, their partner abroad. And because you've got a whole semester, yeah. there's a greater chance that, that you've already built in the roots of continuing that relationship. So yeah, I actually increasingly embedded yeah. the Murray Right. I taught a class like that actually at Catholic Theological Union. When I started working at CRS, I had to stop. It got to be too much, but it was exactly like that. It was a theology class with an immersion trip embedded in the class. It was the best experience of any of the immersion trips I've ever led. I really recommend that, both because <coughs> it gives you time. The, the relationship then, then becomes uh, part. You know, the relationship is sustained. And then also it gives you the time to do the correct preparation and the correct debriefing and engagement afterwards. There's one there and then one there. Kind of, I mean, as a teacher who works in Rwanda and does stuff on genocide, I mean, like, I'd love to do a class where it's an embedded course and we go to Rwanda <coughs> halfway through or three quarters through and we come back and debrief. But this, this is, that, uh, you know, that's not cheap. <laughs> you know, what we're talking about is there are very few people in this room who can make these decisions of these dreams. These are about allotment of resources, and I know you hate that, but these are about institutional yeah, yeah. It's relationships that have to be decided on the institutional level. But as much as we want to do this, I, I can barely run a summer program because it's so freaking expensive yep. for students to go there for six weeks, and you know, and that is a lot. There's a ton of resources, so if we're going to do this kind of stuff, we can dream up these great models, but unless uh, our whole institution is going to do it, and unless CRS is willing to put in the resources to make that available too, the, this is... This is pipe dream stuff. And to be honest, unless there are people institutional level that are willing to put the money down to make this happen, to go deep instead of broad, this is going nowhere. And I'm sorry to be so frank, but that's that's frankly what it is. Unless there's political will, it's going nowhere. So this is but that's I'm on a, my own. Yeah, that's Doing a, my own thing. Uh, we have one more, and then we need to take a break. Back um, back. I'm not sure that it's totally a pipe dream. I mean, I, I think we're actually moving in that direction for some of the groups. Um, an example would be uh, Moswala, um, and I think what Tammy brings to the table, um, where we've been there for 10 years and we work with an NGO and we are partnering uh, Virginia this year, this year. Ian was there and employed by Water for Waswala for years and is now in our <coughs> program. Um, but I also don't want to lose the, um, the break trips. I think they have a very good function. and. Um, I think it's important for the students to go and give. If it's a habitat where they go for one week and they just help build a house, or one my student last year went and saved the turtles in Costa Rica, um, all of that is important. And um, so sometimes they don't, we don't need strong relationships, but I think when we can develop the relationships, they really do um, right. provide wonderful ongoing we have to break because we're ha on a very tight time schedule and I know this is a great conversation but we're going to continue the conversation in the break rooms so we have 10 minutes for you to get coffee and snacks and then there's two rooms 206 and 207 around the corner half of you go in each we're not counting off just half in one 
half in the other. I just want to say that both Paul and Kim have handouts. What Paul was putting up there is here, and we're going to distribute all of this to you. Okay? So, and the, the questions to be addressed in the 30 minutes that we're in small groups are going to be what's the one thing that stands out for you from the presentations that you've heard? What, and then what, what challenges you and what do you think you're doing really well? All right, so you can think about that in the 10 minutes that you're getting coffee. We'll see you in 10 minutes. Around the corner. Minutes for this conversation. So we're, ha we're on a really tight schedule. And what we wanted to do is ask you to identify one thing from this morning's presentation that really stands out for you. And so we can just go around um, and everyone, if you want to pass, you can pass. So maybe start here. Um, One thing. The, the, the sort of uh, relationship between doing and sort of being, the relational uh -huh. aspect. So the, the, the importance of relationship and the, rela and the difference between being and doing and the kind of being part as core of our faith. Irene, are you taking notes? Not yet. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm still passing the paper. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to take notes. All right. Here we Thank go. you. So I'm, st I'm keeping my breathing. That, that would be the thing. You don't want me to elaborate. No, 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 I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> okay, John. Um, yeah, I'm interested in how we're going to get, I come from the campus ministry side of things, how we're going to get these conversations to filter down to our service program leaders and then more importantly even our service program participants. Uh -huh. um, we're in our role with our, here, our advisors and the directors of our programs. How do we get these conversations down to kind of the ground level so they can operationalize that uh, in their programs itself? Mm -hmm. So, to how to take this conversation a step further and integrate it into your program, right. essentially. Okay. Yeah. I think my greatest concern when I'm in country is just the sustainability of the work that we're doing, uh -huh. and that the students are always very charged up when they're immersed in that experience, and ours is course attached for nursing. Um, and so they're all charged up, and they want to do this, and they want to do that, and they come back, and they get back in the real world, and then life happens. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the sustainability both on the ground where you're working, but also, also with on the student side, which I can see it can come back to sustainability in the country if right. they can keep that momentum going. So the issue of sustainability both in your partner communities and in the students. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm taking students to Panama over fall break for the first time. And engineer. I'm with nursing. Engineering's been there for quite a while. And so we're going to have engineering students and nursing students looking at the engineering piece of it. and but nursing is going for the first time into a clinic that's there. And the presentation this morning made me start to jot down the idea, because it's a small clinic, mm -hmm. that I could have one student in the waiting room with the patients and asking them a few simple questions about what they identify as their, the strengths of their community, their assets. And so, so it gave me a real uh -huh. concrete that's additional activity. So what stood out for you really is the asset, the, the idea of asset-based development mm -hmm. is that we're talking about. And especially, I mean, it's what our first time. We don't really know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Irene, do you want to identify um, one thing? Sure do. Um, <laughs> um, I also agree the asset-based because so often we go in with the need, mm -hmm. right. the need-based focus, um, and also, um, you know, still struggling with. Um, whether the short-term projects really are all about our privilege and our experience, mm -hmm. and you know, or whether they're really about doing something in the community. Right? Can they be redeemed, right, yeah. as a, as a as a mutuality project rather than a project of students that it just focuses on students? Because they get transformed. The students we definitely hope. come back yeah. transformed. Mm -hmm. I just 
we haven't done any research in my department on whether the community gets transformed. Right. So that's what I'm concerned Right. About. So make sure you write it down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm a taskmaster. You're a taskmaster. I totally yeah. am because I because we have a, such a tight agenda and I I think Sue in particular has goals for today to make sure that we we meet those. So Nancy. I had a lot of thoughts, but I'll just share one. Oh, one of the things I worried about was that um, it may not be that the locally identified need really gets addressed long term. But in my experience, I was profoundly transformed, and that colored me as a person, as a nurse, and as a teacher for the rest of my life. So I don't think that's a failure. Mm -hmm. It just was a waste of money on there. <laughs> 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 yeah. I'm, yeah. So that's really the same issue that Irene yeah. is identifying, right? Yeah. So how can yeah. we take our, our transformation and make it beyond just ourselves, right? Because because we 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 don't use poor people for our own spiritual growth, right? We want we want a sense of mutuality. So we do want our own spiritual growth, but we also want growth in the in the receiving communities, right? And mm -hmm. and how do we do that? And how do we help to facilitate that? Yeah. Barbara, um, I think I'm still with the assessment and the uh, of of strengths and weaknesses, but uh -huh. but the thing nursing begins with assessing. We always have begun with assessing, but then mm -hmm. frequently we get so tied up in the in the implementation of whatever we're trying to do that we don't get back to reassess and look again. And I think it takes more of an evaluation, repeated evaluations to understand what people's strengths really are. And I would have to be reminded of that. Mm -hmm. So continuing, to using, using asset-based development to assess as well, so assessing strengths and not just assessing need. I mean, the whole idea of asset-based development can be a paradigm shift. In and of itself, that is a paradigm shift for people from our cultural context. Next. Um, one thing that popped into my mind in the last five minutes was uh, we have these week-long immersions, and those are, that's the place where we gain our appreciators and we gain our investors. The people who are invested in the change, something gets ignited. How do we foster that ignition? But then also, how do we cater to the appreciators that will continue to um, support, whether monetarily or through prayer or whatever, how do we keep fostering their appreciation for the experience so that those that are invested in it can continue to do so? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what you mean. I'm, I'm a little bit. Right, so, so there's a group of 15 <laughs> students that go on an immersion trip for right. a week, one week, two weeks, whatever. Right one of those people is going to turn that into a career or a vocation, whereas the other 14 are going to be the ones shelling out the money or the prayers or whatever to support that. Okay. I think the thing that resonated with me in there was something I've seen in the past is not understanding anything about the people in the place that you're going. Um, mm -hmm. So the prep work and rather than just showing up and doing something, Understand why, you know, fitting into the local context, I guess. Right, understanding where you're going. Right. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, to me, it was a sort of paradigm shift in terms of the, the asset-based um, looking at it and, and really looking at, at, at building up the strength in the community. And I've always, you know, thought that and always heard that, but I, I just think that that provided a good framework for that. And also, um, I just want to look, too, uh, my office also does a lot of service programs it, domestically, so how can we apply some of these principles, you know, that we're talking about in a global sense, and look at it locally as well? Yeah, they absolutely carry over. I mm -hmm. mean, absolutely. So, uh, um, 
other thing you've heard from, and, and I think we do a, uh, a good job with prep for the students. Um, I do wonder about in-country. Um, we've been in Peru now for 15 years, and I think that uh, you can see how the engagement on their part in sustainability and their interest in us returning and the importance that they have placed on it and they tell the students every year as, is really good. And, and I think we're, we're able to structure more what we can do to move them to where they want to be. And I think it's beginning to take place in that one community. And I think they've had more success in Nicaragua because just geographically where they are a whole bunch of other reasons. But, um, but it is tough. It's a very tough thing to do. So you're talking about kind of the sustainability issue. Kind of the sustainability part of it. And from their perspective, not right, not never from my perspective. From their and, and identifying for them what their hopes and dreams and goals are. Um, I missed a lot because I had an earlier meeting, but um, one thing that I heard towards the end was how things rapidly are changing. And I remember when we first used to go down to Peru, just showing up. <laughs> no idea what we were going to do. No, nothing. Hoping. Hoping. Pick us up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there was no ability to. Maybe the very first time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you remember that? The first yes. meeting, we said, What do you want? They said, International Airport. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a little bit out of our scope, but uh, we, we'll, we'll, we'll work with this. We'll work yeah, with this. But the thing that's so different today, um, and that was true then when we start, we started to go to Nicaragua in 2004, and we would just show up, and we would come prepared, and they would accept what we had. Now, with the, the ability to communicate, and with our partnerships have been so strong, mm -hmm. we communicate all the time. Well, we go down three times a year at a minimum, um, mm -hmm. and we um, have partnerships in all kinds of areas. It's still not easy, you know, to communicate with everybody and say, this is what we're going to be doing. Um, and the other school of nursing that we're partnering with, this is what they'll be doing. And then it cuts, okay. Um, but the ability to communicate, the changes are, are, are really amazing. And that's in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So you're, basically the ability to communicate, which really enhances our ability to make these partnerships right. and to maintain mm -hmm. the relationships that we've said are so important. Right. Yep. You didn't go. So what were we supposed to do? Name one thing that's, that stood out for you from the, for you from the presentation. Just, uh, I guess, affirming the things that I've been you know, hearing and trying to spread around to other faculty, which is the importance of, of, of an immersion experience uh, providing that relationship piece, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, think, I think our students are aware it's not just, I'm going to go and fix a problem and do charity in the world. Mm -hmm. They get that, but they don't quite know how it can be different. And I think really that focus on being present to the other and realizing that relationship is key to any you know, um, experience, yeah. that I think is a way for them to think about it differently that makes that mutuality mm -hmm. more possible to achieve. And I guess the other thing is just that the, the whole challenge of maintaining that relationship that I mentioned mm -hmm. uh, before. And I do think an embedded uh, immersion experience can sometimes be better at doing that, but it's always a challenge, even in a semester. I mean, how do you turn a semester into four years into a life of a relation, a lifetime of relationships? I, I think our students all the time, you know, with all their connections to Facebook, 
I think it's exhausting to have to be connected to 350 friends on a daily basis. How do you do that? You know? So I don't do they it don't because care like, as much they don't care about each one. <laughs> so I don't want to do it because I don't want to be in, in a relationship unless I can sustain it. So I'm often hesitant to. Right. To it do is that. actually the hardest thing to get people to do for that reason. And we are vulnerable. When we're really in relationship, we are vulnerable. And in uh, what I find in our in the U.S. cultural context, it's very difficult for us to be vulnerable um, to people that are, you know, living in extreme poverty. It then equalizes things. We are when we are in relationship, we are vulnerable, and we're used to being the giver, right? It is a shift for us to allow ourselves to be vulnerable in that way. If the relationship is real, we are vulnerable. That's how it works. So I've heard um, sort of, what I've heard is kind of three overarching themes, relationship and all of the, <laughs> that was nice. That's right, only for Maureen would I do that. I would not do that for Maureen. I would do a lot for Maureen. Well, we've been places, so. <laughs> so I've heard kind of three overarching themes. One is the the theme of relationship um, being instead of doing and all of the issues around relationship. How do we do it and mutuality and ongoing engagement and all of those issues, communication. And I've heard asset-based development and thinking about how we really um, how we really concretize that in our projects and how it's kind of a paradigm shift for us. And then I've heard the sustainability issues. How do we really think through with our partners um, long-lasting change? So that's what I've heard. And then the, the kind of next thing we were going to ask, and I don't want to, we've been going around in a circle. Maureen, do you want to? No. Okay, sorry. So we've been going around in a circle. What I want to do now is the next part was to identify what what are the challenges for your own programs? You may have already identified that in what you've already said. So whoever wants to just name any challenges that you feel that you, um, that you can identify based on this morning's presentation. Senior spring break. <laughs> that's our yeah, problem that's right now. That's our problem right now. That's our right biggest now. problem right now. Is they're going to go to Tahiti instead of going on? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Co cost sure. of overseas immersion experiences. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's time and labor intensive on the faculty's part, mm -hmm. especially to maintain these ongoing relationships <laughs> year round. It's right. not just a semester experience, right? To do the to, to do the kind of deep um, intervention that we're talking about is much more intensive in terms of cost and time mm -hmm. than what what either faculty or students may be prepared for. Is that a summary? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. Anything else? Assessing student outcomes in a yep. meaningful way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And actually, we're moving on in um, uh, Nicaragua to assessing um, the outcomes, because we do an awful lot of, of teaching of the community health workers. And um, the government is depending on them for, they're the first primary contact out in the rural area. Um, and we're, supplying them with some equipment, blood pressure cuffs and baby scales and things like that, but we're challenged to make sure that they actually are competent. And um, so we're actually working on a grant to um, see if we can um, do some sort of assessment um, and competency validation, which the community is asking for. 
Sure. So you're actually talking about assessing outcomes both with students mm -hmm. and in your receiving communities. How do we meaningfully assess mm -hmm. whether our work is having a tr the transformational effect that we want mm -hmm. it to have? Other challenges? For non-credit based programs like mine, <coughs> how do we um, get enough buy-in so that we can do the adequate preparation? You know, when you have a course, oh my gosh, what a wonderful opportunity. But when you don't have that, it's very hard to get them to come to every meeting. Mm -hmm. So they do know about the people in country. They do know about the culture. So mm -hmm. preparation. So how, basically preparation and probably debriefing as well, and right? How do you get people to come? Because when I was yeah. doing, when I have done this, you know, at a non-credit, it's hard to get people to come back yeah. after they've returned. Then right. you, you know, I always would give them food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get them to come back. Got to get them hungry first. Right. Yeah. Other challenges. How often? Excuse me, but how often do you try to get them together before you leave? The leaders have an 11-week training, so that's a little that's bit different. Yeah. But the the participants maybe four weeks, and it's led by the student leaders. Mm -hmm. so I'm in this position relatively, and so I'm reworking it right now. So I'm really welcoming your insights. I wonder about some, uh, you know, online doing more that way. Interesting. Okay. Could I ask, is it a challenge when students return, even if they have an adequate debrief of the experience, how to continue to keep them engaged? Uh, we always try mm -hmm. to invite, CRS tries to invite them to advocacy and, and looking at systemic changes and whatnot, but mm -hmm. uh, do, do you all think we have, you have in place ways to continue that engagement or, or to help them make the linkages between the experience and how they can continue to have impact? Or, well, as a former undergrad here that like, went on many of these experiences that Irene is kind of talking about, it is really difficult to keep the students engaged after they get back. We do have a program where they're supposed to meet for reflections following the experience, but mm -hmm. it is one of those things that becomes like the last priority to after class, after homework, after going to the gym. Yeah. You know, what, cause what is it there for me? Like I already had my experience. I already okay. went to the place. Like what more could I learn from this experience? So trying to get them to come after the fact is incredibly difficult because there's not that kind of need for them to go because they feel they've already had the experience already. There's not a continuing part of that. Is one possibility, and I, I'm, I'm going to quickly turn it over to you to speak, Tom, but I mean, the, the Student Life has developed a fabulous program called SLICE, mm -hmm. and it's a way for students to, to, if you will, package and reflect on their co-curricular experiences, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that one of those initiatives is related to nationalization of culture. Mm -hmm. Global awareness. Global mm -hmm. awareness. Mm -hmm. so and, and cultural competence. There's, right. there's two different Okay, and we know our students, that. let's face it, are all about, you know, how I can package and, you know, get a badge or a credit for this. And so I, I'm thinking that maybe your office could be real instrumental in some of these service trips where they're, mm -hmm. they're not embedded in the course and helping students kind of reflect and, you know, continue that kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. Having that global experience is one of the criteria for that, but then also we, we don't have we didn't separate out the, the post-reflection piece, so we could put attendance at these post-reflection, post uh, post-break experience uh, reflections to, to be part of that as well. So that's a great idea. Yeah. I can add something to that too, and then we'll move on to what do you feel? What are, what are we doing well? You know, based on because we need to name that as well. Um, but students are more likely to stay. In my experience, whether they're students or adults actually older adults or younger adults are more likely to stay engaged if they've had a real relational experience, if they feel connected in some kind of real way to the community that they went, were in or to people. Um, so, so it's one of the gifts of having 
um, you know, immersion trips that are relational in their focus. Relationships are what bind us. It's what people really care about, you know, and that's what will keep people engaged. It's what has kept me engaged. I mean, I've been in Haiti for, since 1997. You know, I'm there because of my relationships. You know, and that is what that is what keeps us there. So it's the relational trips that keep us engaged. And then it's also part of part of the orientation or preparation when we lift up the importance of of the experience as being not just about our personal transformation, but also about the transformation of that community, you know, and the advocacy that goes with that post. If we lift that up from the very beginning and then offer those opportunities for continued engagement, we have a better chance, in my experience. It, but it has to be held up as important from the very beginning. Um, any more challenges before we move on to the what are we doing really well? Because we should name those. I yeah. mean, this is just like we talk all day about it. I don't know that we as group of Villanova, specifically the campus ministry experiences, I can't speak for the in engineering or nursing, I don't know how transformative we can be for those communities. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that we can, those tr communities can transform us, I've seen it in myself, I've seen it in my peers, but I wonder how much we can really go down there and make a lasting relational impact. I don't know that some of the relationships I've had have continued since I've been back, but I think for a lot of those communities, it's hard for them to kind of look at a group of, you know, 15 mostly white uh, Americans coming in there and you know working on a project with them um, and to feel really transformed rather than just helped um, so trying to move from helping to transforming absolutely yeah. and I think we need to name that as a challenge and, and put that on our list because we're going to discuss kind of so solutions or action steps in the next session so that is a really important how how can we really be transformational in the communities that are receiving us huge issue Yes. But, but related to that, I think, one, and one of the challenges, how do we evaluate how the organizations that we go and serve with in these communities, how do they impact the, the, the community? Because I, I think, you know, I, I worry a little bit when I, when I hear some sentiments, you know, about, oh, should we do these break trips because, you know, we're not, you know, having this relationship. Well, I think in some sense we could let ourselves off the hook because, you know, for instance, there's um, like Rostro in, uh, in Ecuador, right? We send groups down there maybe once a year or twice a year. But how do we evaluate how Rostro, uh, we are one part of that and for one week, and our students come back transformed, but how does Rostro transform the, uh, you know, right, the, yeah. the Ecuador? And, and how do you hold them accountable? And what? I think that should be, you know, how do we hold accountable our partner organizations that we're working through that are not organizations that are necessarily indigenous? That's an right. organization based in Boston. Right, right. right. So, I mean, Villanova is one piece of that and a very important piece, and we provide the resources. So. As long as Rostro is making an impact and 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 doing um, having that those right relationships, I think we can feel good about our participation there and kind of. Right. So it's, so the question is holding them accountable, yeah, and I think yeah. that's a great point yeah. because there's you know countless organizations just like that that universities and high schools are working through to do their immersion trips. So how do we hold them accountable? And those are mostly what we work through. Right. Of course. Right. And, and Everyone because, does. Because it we put out 800 students a year on these trips. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't do it if we had an individual relationship with each community. Right. I right. don't know how I feel about that. I've inherited this. So, yeah, I think that's something we have to really I'm yeah, telling you, I'm telling you, you can feel good about that. <laughs> you know, if, yeah, if, if, if Rochelle's doing what, with what they say they're doing, and yeah, if they that, are having that's, that that's impact. That's the message you know? that I got. That, if, yeah. that, and I think that might answer your question a little bit. That. Um, the students might not see that uh, that the transformation, but if the organization that we're working with is making an impact, then um, slowly but surely, 
that something's happening. So if it's a good organization that we're going with, um, I think that might be because well, a week I, I think we could not. Yeah, and then it comes to it comes to how do we assess that in the organizations that we're working through using the kinds of principles that we're talking about, using subsidiarity, using sustainability, using asset-based development. Are they really addressing lifting up the capacity of? of that community to, to, to take responsibility. Are they doing that and then how do we assess it? Do we have control of that? Or I mean, like, that could be an ideological thing. Like if we're trying to change the model of how we do immersion experiences to focus more on relationship and less on, less on trying to do things or put things on the ground, then what if, what if the agencies we work with, they say, you know what, no, this is what we want. You need to have a house built by the end of this week. Right. Because yeah. this is what we do, and this is what we tell them we do. Then if we have, then we have to decide, do we want to participate in that? And, what, and how many places are out there that actually do relational-based immersion experiences? And that might be a problem. But I don't think we're talking about relationship, you know, with every single thing. You know, like, uh, the relationship might be between Villanova and this organization, and the kids go and they build a home. In general, they work with community members. Yeah, so the indigenous pieces. Right. Is, I think so in general, it, they meet piece, and yeah. have lunch with and mm -hmm. lay bricks with with local people. They may never see them again. Mm -hmm. But um, building the house, a doing thing, is a yeah. fine thing, and um, it may make a difference for that community. And they've broken bread. But I, but I think that's the challenge of what what you're talking about is this, that the idea of like. Maybe the house is a distraction. Maybe a house is really not what's the most important thing to them. That's Maybe the relationship saying. is the most important thing to, to the them. Community to, the community. to the community. Yeah. And I think that's what you were yes. talking about this morning, which is a challenge yes. because, mm -hmm. you know, if, most of us come from doing. I'm, I'm an educator, so my doing is actually more relational because I want, I'm, you, a, I'm not out mm -hmm. to put things on the ground or put things in people or, you know, you know like nurses. You know, like, but. We but have relationships too. But you do. <laughs> but, I, but, it, but granted, it is a bit of a challenge to, you make assessments of what the need is and then you do that and you solve the problem. It's a very problem solution model. We would probably. Disagree. I think you guys do a great, a great, great job with that. But you got to admit there would be some tension between that model of putting a, a house on I the ground there is a and the relational part. Actually, I think breaking bread, working side by side with a community member. So can um, I just? I need yeah. to respond yeah. though. I need yeah. to. I know what I've done that. It's I need to respond yeah. on behalf of the communities whose voices aren't at this table right. because yeah. if you ask them, they're going to say to you. We don't need you to build our house right. for us. Right. Mm -hmm. That is what they say. And they say, you are spending so much money to send people down yeah. here to build a house for us. Send us the money. We can right. build yeah. it ourselves. Absolutely. You know, and that, okay. I think, needs to be part of this conversation. And the same is true for medical interventions as well. Like, how well is that community, after your intervention, able to provide nursing care for its own people without being dependent on you coming in? Because if right. you ask them, they're going to say, we want to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. right? And the right. same thing with building the house. If you ask them, what do they really care about? They care about the relationship. And they care that you care about them. Yeah. That's what they right. care about. Mm -hmm. so, so, sitting, so building the house may be something that facilitates relationship. But if it's the purpose of the yeah. trip, then you're in violation of the whole of of the reason why they might be inviting you in the first place. Can I give you just a quick vignette about this yeah. summer when I, and it will be quick. Uh, when I was in Rwanda, they do a, a community service day every month in Uganda. It's the first Saturday of the month, and so we went. Mm. And we wanted to participate. It's a national thing. We da 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 da. da. So we go out and and I, we have this place. We're going to pick up this area. So 
We say, this is what we're doing. And then I just went into, we all went into clean mode, clean. And we just got to busy and we were down the ground. We were just pulling leads and we were just picking up stuff and just, cause this is what we do. We're cleaning up, it's Uganda. We're so excited to be there. And I had one guy who stopped me and said, you know, whoa. Um, it, it, frankly, he said, basically, Umuganda is not about work. It's about relationships. This is the time when we as a community get together and we, and this, the work is not important. Slow, basically, slow, slow down. Slow down. Yeah. Stop working. This is, who are you? Where are you from? Um, that's it, you know, and so I was like, and I was like, wow, he's absolutely right. That's profound. I was like, everybody slow down, you know, like, and then we just talked and then we spent 45 minutes picking up trash, but we spent that, and then we spent another hour and a half just mm -hmm. talking and walking down the road, and we didn't pick up crap. But that wasn't, that's not what Umuganda is. Umuganda is about community, and it, and it was a glaring, simple example of, the, of what I, we were there to do, was to pick up trash and, and clean this space up, and they were there about building relationships. They wanted to know who we were. Right. They do not need you to pick up they their trash. They don't need us to pick up their trash. The trash is going to be back there in a week. They can pick up their own trash if they want to pick it up, <coughs> and that is not why they want you there. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. right. We um, need to break and go back into the other room. There so, she is. Thank Man. you. <laughs> 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 Irene, are you ready to, you're going to report for us. Okay. <laughs>